0: You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. I'm hoping you've seen how joy makes a difference and what joy is, and that it is not only a present reality, but it is our future. The fact that um, because of Jesus Christ and how he broke into the middle of this world into a... (laughs) into a world that was going off the rails in the wrong direction and how through his death and resurrection he has opened up a new way and a new future for us, where he is that future. As the book of Colossians will state, everything holds together in him. Everything finds its purpose in him. Everything finds its direction and fulfillment in him. And that is our future. He is our future. And that can bring us joy even in the midst of some tough situations in this world. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it on my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anyone, anything you think dif- otherwise God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained." OK. Wow. You know, the more I was thinking of this passage, the more I realized this is Paul's story, his narrative. And I guess the question this morning is, you know, I think my wife said this before. I don't know where you got the What's your story, Morning Glory? Haven't you said that? Yeah. What's going on? What's your story? We all kind of, in fact, human beings are narrative creatures. We put a story together. We have to put a story. It's the way we make meaning of our lives. It's not just one thing after another, but it's like how they interact, how they connect together, makes all the difference to who you are and what you're about. And the question is, what is your story? And what's going on? Because the story you tell yourself about your life makes a huge difference. Okay, And I'll tell you this. Just like Paul, we all tend to make a story that's kind of a broken story of glory. You know, how we're going to attain glory, how great we're going to be, how everything's going to work out, and then it doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't. Okay. So from this section of the letter of Philippians, we're going to uh, be exploring these three points. And I hope you see how it ties in. The broken glory story we're prone to believe. The cross story that makes a difference and the joy that comes from story transformation in your life. Okay, The glory story. Uh, What's fascinating is Paul, uh, this becomes the only time he really has a sharp rebuke in this wonderful letter of Philippians. And it's in this second verse in this text. It says, look out for the dogs. Whoa. Now, we think of dogs as puppies. Yeah. No, the dogs then, dogs were like unruly um, strays that were considered unclean and um, not to be put up with, Okay, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Three different ways of saying, look out for those outsiders that are coming in and they look righteous but they're really doing something bad and they want to wound you. (laughs) Okay, They want to wound you. It's quite the break from what he says at the beginning uh, of this, finally my brothers rejoice in the Lord to write the same thing to you is no trouble. It's like In fact, that's why a number of commentators have mentioned that this disjoint between these two verses seems to be so stark. Is it coming from two different letters that were compiled together? But I think he's telling you, watch out for those who are going to rob you of the joy that is yours in the story of Jesus Christ in your life. And they are going to come at you in a way that looks good, but is really intended to bring about destruction whether they realize it or not. And Paul's not saying, just look at them. He was one of them, if you want to put it. He says in Philippians 3, 4 to 6, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, kind of like these individuals who are coming in and saying, look at what we've been able to accomplish. We're keeping the law. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to a law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's saying, I was raised right. I have a proper degree. I am all so zealous. I lived as close to perfection as any human being. And in fact, nobody could find a fault in me. And Paul could pull it off, he could pull it off enough for him to believe he could basically do it good enough. And yet, even when you're trying to live as good as you can, you know it's not quite enough. It's interesting. Um, like, I teach almost every semester world religions. and. Again, uh, we're in the midst of uh, a couple other world religions and um, outside of Christianity right now. And uh, the students are recognizing, like, how these systems are all set up so that you do live a moral and ethical life. And you have to follow all of these different steps. And then, the steps have to have little mini steps added to them, and even more and more and more and more because they're not quite sure. And then if you can't get it all done in this life, you get to come back again and again and again and again until maybe you're pure enough to finally get there. And what I think the students are recognizing is in the system of a religion, whatever it happens to be, you're never quite. There. Never quite satisfied. Never quite full. Never quite complete. Even if you can, somebody can look at you and go like, "Wow, I would love to get to be like Paul someday." Right? He knows, and deep down, it's not quite enough. Gerhard Ferdi says it this way: the desire, the thirst for glory, or wisdom, or power, or money. And for Paul, it was more the thirst for wisdom, knowing it all and having it all. And glory, we'll get to that word in a little bit, what that actually means. But it's never satisfied by the acquisition of what is desired. The more we get, the more we want. There is never real satisfaction, never the confidence that we have done enough. How much money does it take to make one happy? Just a little more. As sinners, we are like addicts, addicted to ourselves and our own projects. The theology of glory simply seeks to give those projects eternal legitimacy. So that's the question. What's your story, morning glory? What's your glory story? Where are you finding your worth? Where are you trying to find your enoughness? Where are you trying to find your glory? The word glory, actually, in the Hebrew understanding of it, is weightiness, substance, It means kind of like something substantial, finally. So many times, we don't feel like we're quite full or we have enough. We need a little more. We need a little more. We need a little more. That's the thirst for that glory that someday we'll get. And so often, we tell us our story in such a way as it's a quest to get that glory, whatever it is. Here are some examples of what you're glory story can look like. These are not exhaustive, but just a few. Like, I need to look good. That is, be good enough as I can be, nearly perfect, and then people will love me. Don't let anybody see a flaw, because you're not quite sure how they're going to respond to you then. Or how about, I am worthy of love when I'm helping other people. As long as I can help them a lot, then I know they're going to love me back. Or when I perform, when I achieve, when I get the right grades, when I get the right accolades, then I am somebody. If I fail, I am worthless. You know, a lot of people I think this one, my life is valuable when it's filled with expensive things and fun things and experiences. If nothing's going on, the last thing I can handle is boredom. I'm trapped. I feel worthless. Or finally, there are some that say, hey, it's a tough world. you got to fight for everything you get. you got to make it up. Don't let anybody ever see a weakness in you. And each of these stories are trying to gain that feeling of substance and fullness and completeness that never is quite there. The problem with these glory stories, they're really based on fears or they're based on pride. They make you more self-focused or more vain. And that's kind of why I'm prone to believe it, because I don't mind being focused on myself. But they're all broken. They don't work. And I have a feeling Paul. It's interesting when you see how Paul uh, tells his story over it. And he tells his story multiple times in the book of Acts. Here in Philippians, he'll tell it uh, in other circumstances, uh, Galatians, etc. He tells his story about that road to Damascus, but I have an already feeling that his zeal was covering up a dissatisfaction, knowing the fact that he wasn't quite good enough, and he he already kind of wanted to get off that uh, legalistic train. You know, it just wasn't working for him. And Jesus gave him the absolute best reason ever. Because Paul could sort of believe, maybe I'll get there. I can maybe do it. I've tried. I know all 613 commands in the Torah. I can do it. But Jesus confronts him and just says simply, why, Paul, are you persecuting me? Why are you kicking against the goads? You know, the athlete, she can gain her worth from her performance until she has an injury. And the executive can find his value in his position until he retires. And the physician can feel great about her own righteousness and how great she's helping people until she fails someone. Isn't it interesting how it works for a while until it doesn't? Paul was on a mission that he thought he was doing the right thing He was convincing himself as much as he could that it was the right thing with the right type of zeal, with the right type of motivation, until he saw Jesus and he realized everything he was doing is actually violating the very law he said he was fulfilling. He writes, whatever whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul, his glory story, it's probably one of the most seductive of all, by the way, because it's really a masking over of human ambition and human self-will. The will to have it your way. You are saying, oh, yes, God, I want to do your will, but really, it's just a way of rubber stamping. I want my will to be done. It happens so often in religious circles in one form or another, and it looks so good because, wow, that person is doing so much sacrificially for others. Yeah, well, I know how this works. 35 years of pastoral ministry, um, countless times of, preaching and teaching and all this stuff, and people go like, oh, John, and I know it's not done for selflessness all the time. It's not done for the paycheck necessarily, but it's definitely done for others to say, wow, he's really good at. Isn't it interesting how easily mixed in our own ambitions are to, quote, and then call it God's will? It's just It just shows how broken that story can be. Paul's confronted then, finally, by the cross story that's going to make all the difference for him and and transform his whole life so that it is a life of joy. So Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And on that road, he meets the one who's not only perfect in keeping all of God's law, in a sense, because he is the word of God. He is the son of God. He meets someone with full glory. And yet, he meets someone who gave up all of his glory who poured all of his life out for the sake of others, who went well beyond all of the commandments to accomplish something that even the commands did not demand, and that is to sacrifice himself for the sake of others. It's called grace, right? Unconditional love. Beyond anything any law-keeping person would ever admit thinking that the law could do. And when Paul was confronted by this one human being, the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ, who's done everything for him, well, he realizes that word of the cross put an end to him. He says it this way in 1 Corinthians, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. Notice he calls it not the word about the cross, but the word of the cross. Huge distinction. I think probably, if you're like me growing up in church, churchy kind of environments, you've heard a lot of words about the cross. And we turned it into a formula. OK, so you are a sinner. And then Jesus came to die for your sins. So you are forgiven. So don't worry about that. Basically, it doesn't change you. It just adds into your life the cross, and everything's OK. That is not the word of the cross. The word of the cross seems like foolishness, but it's the power of God. The word of the cross puts an end to all your glory stories, to all your attempts to justify yourself, to make, make your life, quote, worth it. The word of the cross puts you to death and raises you to a new life. And here's the word of the cross. We were lost and didn't know it. We were blind and couldn't see. We were broken, but believing we could fix ourselves. And yet, when Jesus came to find us and open our eyes, we didn't want him. And there are a lot of people in this world to say, well, wait a minute. Now, you know, if you believe that God is loved and God forgives, then well, why doesn't he just do that? Why doesn't he just kind of snap his fingers, forgive, and everything's OK? And Gerhard Ferdi, I think, says it quite well. He says, if you look at the narrative about Jesus, the actual facts The brute facts as they come down, the answer is quite simple. He did. Jesus came preaching repentance and forgiveness, declaring the bounty and mercy of the Father. The problem, however, is that we could not buy it. So we killed him. And just so we are caught in the very act, every mouth is stopped once for all. All the pious talk about yearning and desire for reconciliation, forgiveness, all our complaint against God, it simply shut up. He came to forgive and we killed him for it. We would not have it. It's simple as that. Paul thought he was doing the right thing at the right time in the right way because this messianic, heretical sect was violating the law of God in whatever way that he thought it was. And he went after it only to find out he was the one violating the law of God. He didn't understand it. Have you ever wondered why Paul was blinded on the road to Damascus? You know, he saw a great light and all, but I think it was to pic- uh, picture the reality he actually lived in even before that road. He was blind and could not see the reality. And for the three days before this man named Ananias came to him, he was sitting there absolutely helpless absolutely wondering what in the world is going on, what he had just seen, how wrong he had been, but also how gracious God must be because he didn't kill me on the spot. He should have. I was trying to kill him. I'm trying to destroy his whole ministry that Jesus had set up, and he spares me. So that's why Paul says in Galatians this way, I have been crucified with Christ. That's the cross story. You are crucified with Christ. He takes all of us with him and places all of that on the cross in his own body so that that life, that way of trying to attempt to gain our own righteousness on our own is put to death there too. Our law-fixated obsession, our judgmental attitudes towards everyone else who's not doing as well as we are, our pious and religious zeal trying to show and prove to everyone and ourselves and convincing us all just how wonderful we are as human beings, how great we are at it, that gets put to death there as well. Our scorekeeping is put to death there. Our self-righteous leaning into things is put to death there. That's the cross story. And that actually brings you joy. It frees you from the rat race of trying to make your own righteousness to prove your worth and your value. The joy comes with a new story. Paul continues with Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. Did you get that? That's his story now. He is loved. Jesus gave his life for me. That's the center of his story. Ian Crum, in his book, The Story of You, puts it this way. All transformation begins with story transformation. You won't change if you don't break free from your old self-defining story. You aren't going to change if you don't see that God has already changed you. Changed your status with him. If you think, well, you know, I've got I've to achieve. I've got to make the grade, I've got to get ahead. I've got to um, be better than anyone else. If you have to feel like you've got to be the competitor all the time, you can add Jesus into that picture, and he's just helping you to be a better competitor. That's not going to do it. It needs to be a transformed story. Where now you say, for to me to live is Christ. For me to live is to live in the grace and love of God. And the life that I have now is a life of faith based on what he has already done for me and the joy he sets before me, the joy of eternity that's a total gift. And now I can live imperfectly knowing what's ahead of me. Paul tries to counter kind of a perfectionist tendency, it seems like, that some of the Philippians had when he writes at the end of the section we looked at, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That word for perfection or being perfect is the Greek word teleos, which is where we get kind of telescope, you know, that goal, that ending, the total at the end of the road, we get there finally. Paul's saying, I haven't arrived yet, but I'm heading that direction, and God is calling me into it, and he's comfortable, perfectly comfortable being imperfect now. What's interesting is he uses that word two times in this passage. The first time is to say, I'm not perfect yet. And then he later on says um, this in Philippians 3.16, let those of us who are teleos, mature. We translate it mature, but it's basically the same word as perfect. Let those who who are mature, who are complete, realize and have the same attitude. God is going to reveal it to you. In other words, those who are mature in this world, no, they aren't, (laughs) right? Those who are mature, no, they're not perfect. The best kind of Christian fellowship I think we can have is where we all know we don't have to put on (laughs) some fake smile and some... um, act like we've got our whole act together, any of that stuff, because it's just not true. Maturity in the Christian life is allowing yourself to be imperfect, but knowing God has got you and he's going to bring you to completion. Or I think David Zoll... In one of his books or um, articles summarizes it, he says sanctification, that is that trying to strive ahead and kind of growing is really simply the art of getting used to our justification, that is that we are saved by God's grace. The more you realize God's grace in your life, the more you realize how imperfect you are, the more you realize how that broken story tries to come back in again, but the more you can let the cross story be the center of your life. And the more you're going to be loving on people that you would be surprised at. You're going to be able to share grace with others because you've received grace yourself. You're going to be able to forgive others because you know how much you've been forgiven. You can freely give because you've freely received. That's your story. Yes, that is your story. That's a story that transforms you. And that makes all the difference. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today, um, thank you. Thank you that you take us. um, You take uh, even, Lord, you you know how in religious circles so often uh, this, you know, pious, um, talk about wanting to do your will, Lord, so, so becomes um, just another way of kind of bragging about self. And Paul just puts an end to that here. Your, your cross does, Lord. We didn't want you, but you wanted us. We didn't come to you, you came to us. We didn't find you, you found us. We were lost, we were blind. And you found us, and you gave us sight to see your goodness and grace. We thank you for all these things. Lord, may your story of cross and resurrection be so centered in our lives, get so down deep, Lord, that it becomes our identity, that to live is you, Jesus Christ. To, uh, to know you and the power of your resurrection being conformed to you, Lord Jesus as Paul talks about here, not having a righteousness of our own, not trying to build up or keep score or trying to figure it out, but just holding on to you. And that that makes such a difference for us and for others, Lord. May we be a fellowship where uh, the imperfect, the flawed, the broken stories of our lives, Lord, are able to be known, but more the story, the transformation of how you've incorporated us into your life, Lord Jesus. And we are now yours and you are ours. And what else can we do but be just in gratitude? We can never repay you and you don't want us to even try. But we can thank you and we will. Lord God, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts to receive, um, well, to receive you, Lord Jesus, and all that you have to offer us, Lord, by your grace, as we will celebrate uh, your supper in just a few moments. Lord, you came in love, you came to forgive, and we put you on a cross and wanted you out of here, and yet, by that very act, somehow, you accomplished everything you wanted to for us. We thank you for that. Forgive us, Lord, for our sins and for our self-righteous ways and our, even our, some of our striving, Lord, to do more is not really about doing your will but ours. Forgive us for all those things, Lord God. Create in us new hearts, a new spirit within us. Do not cast us from your presence, but draw us even closer, Lord Jesus, this day. And we know you are faithful, O God, that you forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is your desire. And we pray that you'd bless our um, offerings today, that what we give you, Lord, is just a token of our whole lives offered to you in your service and for the sake of others. And use our offerings, Lord, for your kingdom's sake and your will to be done in our lives, in our community, in our world. All these things we offer to you this day in Jesus' name.